Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic with Aaron Cameron, sitting in our podcast booth at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. It is absolutely packed with people. It's great to see. Cannot enjoy myself anymore. We are doing a speaker video series while we're here, sponsored by Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, Rycom, Turner Townsend. Thanks, of course, for sponsorship. Our guest is Rosemary Feenan, Executive Vice President, Global Research Quadrille Property Group. She has been uh, here for two days. She did the Global Property Markets Conference yesterday and then the first day of the Toronto Real Estate Forum. So we hope she has uh, energy for one more uh, go around on uh, the topic of real estate. Rosemary, welcome. Thank you. So your panel today is on the topic of the vibrancy of downtowns. And has that already happened? Have you already done your panel? Yes. Okay. All right. We're at the end of that topic. But before we do, uh, we always want to just you know, kind of go backwards. How did you get into real estate? How did you end up where you are today speaking on a panel at the Toronto Real Estate Forum? I started off my career as a town planner rather a lot of decades ago. And from that went into what is basically location research in those days, actually, for a supermarket chain in the UK. From there, I knew nothing about real estate, but realized that the connection between research and what was happening in a very fast-moving real estate market, even back in the 80s, was weak. And I had the big opportunity to join then a couple of companies that were really trying to build their research profile, to think about data, to try to address in a methodological and analytical way many of the issues, some problems, and a lot of opportunities that were emerging in the market at that time. So after a couple of decades of working in an agency environment, first for a company called Chesterton and then Jones Lang LaSalle, I actually used to come to Canada a fair bit to do some work for them over here and got to meet the amazing chief executive of Quadrille, Dennis Lopez. We got talking and the rest is history. So I came to Canada to look after research then. Quadrille's a very young company, only five years old to build up the team and to really help to set strategy. It's funny. I mean, Quadrial went from you know, not existing to multi-billion dollar enterprise in the blink of an eye. Yes, indeed. We had big ambitions and we're meeting them. So research. What was your background in research? What was the attraction of research? Obviously, your subject matter is real estate, but you know the principles of research kind of stand alone. Well, very much from an urban planning point of view, and my education was as a geographer. And once you get the spatial bug, you can't help yourself. You just want to follow it through your whole career. And I had the great privilege, really, unlike a lot of my chums back in the day at college, of having really followed through that passion all the way through my career. Here I am, really still thinking heavily, being challenged by what spatial change is happening in our cities and certainly how property markets react to that and how we can really apply our analytics and of course in this world now of a lot more data of AI, real sort of thought processes going around understanding data flows across surfaces and ecosystems, how all of that can be contained into solid answers to the big strategic questions that we're facing in the real estate markets and in cities. It is an amazing time for data. There's a couple of services uh, that we use as a company, First National, and punch in an address and you've got such a deep view 
of that location. I mean, you still need to go walk them. That's, you know, definitely the old fashioned still works for sure, but it's stunning. It makes your ability to evaluate an investment just happen at light speed as compared to 30 years ago. Well, no, real estate is still slow. I mean, it is very slow, but... (laughs) We're still lacking, would you believe, after sort of four decades of thinking about data, we're still lacking some data that we'd all very much like to have. And I'm thinking, of course, uh, maybe for major urban centers, there's good coverage in data. If you get in even to mid-sized cities within Canada, it's slim pickings at that point in terms of data points. Yeah, and look, a lot of cities have got hugely better over the decades, certainly the last 10 years of being very open source on their data. So a lot of them really have understood that we need to sort of open the bonnet on these things in order to get best answers. A lot of cooperation going with cities around the world, particularly when the smart city movement came up, of course, which itself really helped to create all the sensors, the tracking data and put them on common platforms so as we can understand what's going on, even through to how you collect data. One of my favorite unsung heroes is the intelligent lamppost. I'm not sure where this piece of data came from, but I'm told that there's 326 million lampposts out there around the world, but only about 10 million of them so far are smart, and a smart lamppost enables the collection and tracking, not in any individual or sort of privacy question basis, but track people, where they are, how fast they're going, and a lot of other attributes that help very detailed spatial analysis. And that's what we really need. You know, I think we're past having data that's collected at a high level. What we need is absolute granularity. Before we get into what your research is discovering, and I do want to talk about your interpretation of the research and what you see is transpiring in our city centers globally, because I think that's a really interesting conversation. When you were having that conversation with the president of Quadrio, what was the alignment what was it that he was saying that kind of aligned with your own personal beliefs that really made you motivated to join Quadril and come to Canada? In the real estate world, a lot is around looking at future trends, not crazy out there futures, but really what's happening that you can see the seeds of change in that you feel like is going to start to influence how you might look at strategy. And think five years ago, data centers was a good example. They were not well understood, well known necessarily by the real estate industry. And yet with the absolute amazing development of data, its applicability, its availability, how much streaming was coming through, it was clear that a data center would become a real part of thinking about the futures of real estate. And as you know, the term is alternatives. I would say that data centers are certainly a very firm part of real estate futures now. So the conversations were about what do we see as researchers in the data? We're very specific. We try not to use the word think too much. We like to use the word evidence. What's the data telling us that is really going to make you have an aha moment about what to invest in, where to invest in it, the why, all the standard questions about real estate investing, and then any of the nuances that really get you ahead in terms of thinking through the clever approach to a lot of diversity, a lot of different investment options in real estate and in countries. Uh, So when we started, in fact, and still are, uh, very much in support of global cities, thinking through where the fulcrum of opportunities are, where 
cities really do provide heavyweight economic futures. And it is in the big cities around the world. What's been interesting, of course, in the last three years since the pandemic is how those geographies have changed a little bit, how the opportunities have come through for smaller cities. You've heard all the stories about Austin, Texas, you know, if you know their strapline, keep Austin weird, seems to have worked for them. They've had a lot of in-movers, a lot of companies from California, San Francisco, Valley have moved over there, partly because, of course, affordability, another major thread of thinking, is better in a city like Austin. Also, it has a young profile. You get that vibrancy. So that's the, the whole question that we've been trying to debate is what creates good community, good vibrancy and stickiness as we think about city futures. I got to ask, as a data person and a global city person, what did you think of the Sidewalk Labs proposal here in Toronto? Because it was going to be very data heavy, although that caused part of the backlash. What did you think of that entire concept? I'm going to pass on answering that too directly, but the concept, I would certainly say, is a really interesting one. Is it the future? For some cities, it will be. You think about Singapore. Singapore was one of the first cities that really tried hard to look at every single piece of technology that was going to benefit the citizen. Visible pieces of technology as well, rather than just those that are slightly less visible. And typically, that's around thinking about accessibility, it's around travel, it's around informated streets so people can really access information about where they are, what they have to do. So using every or pulling in every part of technology in a concept is a great one. But you do have to always think about the trade-offs and clearly in Toronto the trade-off was going to be too much in terms of privacy. You look at other cities in, in the Middle East that are trying that. Mazdar was another great city thinking about trying to be net zero far in advance of other cities using that type of technology and design. So there's an awful lot of strands to that argument that we could pull on. Some of them, I think, are more applicable to immediate action. Some are going to take a while. Do we want to jump into cities as broad or not just smart cities, but the topic of your panel today Resilience is one, yes. I can say here in Toronto, just like resilience is not uh, something you can quantify. You know, you can't say, oh, it's a score is at a seven and a 10, but it is a great word. And I feel that in downtown Toronto now. I did not feel that way last year. So resiliency in downtowns, you know, where are we seeing globally? Who are the leaders in coming back to fully robust downtown ecosystems? What cities do you admire? Yeah, interesting question. I should also use the term vibrancy, which was in our title. Those two terms go together very well. The debate is largely about how cities and their economic profiles, plus their ability to be accessible, again coming back to infrastructure and transport, are showing very different profiles when it comes to their ability to respond to pandemic. A lot of the debates were around office, and that's been a theme all yesterday as well as today at the forum. The big worry about work from home or work elsewhere, not necessarily the office. And what I think the figures tell you is it uncovers the very different profiles that cities have. So there's a castle systems who look at entry, using entry cards in, I think it's 10 cities across the US. So you look at attendance on, say, a Wednesday, and what it tells you is that a city like San Jose, 
in a couple of weeks ago, attendance was something like 42%. If you look at Austin, it's more like 75%. And you try to work out what's going on in those cities that you'd have such a sort of different response. You look across the world in Asia, very much almost back to normal. In London, it's probably in the 60s, in the city of London, a little less. The issue with the data is that, of course, it's a point in time. And what we're more interested in is what that flow is going to look like in the future and whether or not we're still stuck in this pandemic-related different behaviors. Now, most everyone will tell you, perhaps other than Elon Musk, that hybrid is the future. So possibly three days a week, possibly four days a week. One of the panels showed a, a survey they'd done on that. That may or may not be true, but it does not mean that there's anything like the death to the office that people talk about. What it does mean is that we have to understand far more about the high energy interactions that happen in a downtown and the big conversations around we need more housing downtown, need more variety of services downtown. We need to make sure that anything that we are planning is inclusive. And the other feature that I find really interesting is the real estate response. We have to be aware of the value of time. In Tokyo, as far as I can look the figures, they are, even though their culture would suggest otherwise, quite low in back to work because, of course, in Tokyo, biggest city on earth almost, the commutes are really long. So we have to really make sure that when we're thinking of the future vibrancy, that we take that into account. Now, the other thing that's a little bit conflicting is, perhaps it's actually explanatory, that the figures also show everyone's happy to come in at the weekends. So it's not that the downtown is not vibrant. It's just that we've all changed our relationship with it as a geography. You mentioned transportation and infrastructure, commute times. One of the conversation points around return to downtown office use, hybrid office use, is that as an employee, I'm gaining a whole bunch of productivity because I'm not sitting in traffic or sitting on the train. How do you marry that with just the benefits of being downtown? Like, How does a city look at that and go, that's true. I want you to stay home more often. I want less traffic because that is more efficient as a city. Like, Does that start to get into... How does that conversation play out when you're looking at the research, looking at the statistics? I'm not convinced that the question of productivity is definitive at this point. Very individually judged, in my view. Certainly from a traffic point of view, as we all saw during the worst of the last couple of years, it's helped cities in terms of not having that congestion and pollution. But as with everything, there's a balance. What the research tends to suggest is, again, we need those collaborations. We need the collision. None of this is new. We've known this for many, many years to create the innovation. And think about this. Innovation is going to be the savior of what's happening to our downtowns right now. Does that work on Zoom all the time? Does it work on Teams? Maybe to a certain level. But the reality is that when we're thinking about where to go forward, we need to have people together. This is a very standard argument. My view also is, though, that we look at it clinically. This, you know, oxytocin hormone which is the thing that the sort of hoggy hormone, you need to have that physical closeness. It's not just a business thing or it's not just I don't want to travel thing. It's far more fundamental. And we've seen that through the ages. You think about the first recorded city, apparently 
Uruk in ancient Mesopotamia 6,000 years ago, we're, we're doing the same thing. They were gathering for sort of talent and trade and wanting to be together. It's no different. You know, humanity has that same thread of need through them to have that type of closeness. Regardless of how long it takes to get into the office. <laughs> Not regardless, but more measured. Trying to combine our thoughts. The extra 30 minutes it might take you in the morning or 45 minutes is outweighed by the value of the interactions, the incidental collisions, the need to be close to your colleagues. So that extra 45 minutes might be a good use of your time. I've just read some research recently that actually addresses that point entirely. Maybe it's a bit self-serving in some ways, but it does say that what is seen is that if you do have to go by public transport home, back to the office, it is your time to deflate from the pressures of actually being in an office environment. So it's good in terms of relationship if you're going back to your family rather than getting up from your kitchen table and suddenly, whoa, straight into the family thing. To be honest, there's so much research that is leading us to think more cleverly, but I'm not sure it's giving us necessarily direct answers. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, personal experience, I don't know that I see too many smiles in greater Toronto area traffic. <laughs> it's notoriously bad, but I do relate to it and that it is time for me to uh, collect my thoughts. I do will absolutely subscribe, though, that when it's 5, 30, 6 o'clock, whenever, and I'm out working from home, the transition into family life is a lot harder than when I get to sit in my car or sit on the GO train for 30 minutes and just pivot. My brain goes, okay, you're in family mode now versus that instantaneous. Let's try to, maybe we can't do this. How does this implicate what you're doing for Quadrille? How would you take what you're learning, the conversation we just had or others, and go to Quadrille and say, here's how you can impact and monetize it. And this is what you should be doing to strengthen the resiliency of downtown. How does that conversation play itself out? Again, we're always just looking at the trends. So take e-commerce which, by the way, is also an impact of the pandemic as we've seen those figures go crazy. Penetration is over 50% in China. It's lower in Canada by quite a lot. In the UK, it's about 35% of transactions made through e-commerce. What that did was changed, to a degree, the spatial geography of the city because we needed last-mile facilities. We needed these fulfillment centers. We needed hubs. And so you saw a lot of land value contour change across the city while people were desperate to get these things built in time to meet the sort of pandemic-related increase in e-commerce. And moderating now, of course it is, but nevertheless, it creates another layer of land use and building type that wasn't necessarily there before. So when we think about quadrille strategy, we're always thinking, what's the next layer? How do we relate different uses. You, know, you and I did a, their normal report, and I think in last year's, I counted an examination of 28 sectors or subsectors. When I'd started in real estate, show my age, it was office, shops, and houses, and industrial. And that's what we talked about. So you can see over the time how the whole of the real estate market is expanding taking advantage of the innovations that are happening in society through technology, through demand. We think about the customer. What do they want? They want choice. They want cost. They want connectivity. They want control. Every single thing, in my view, in real estate comes back down to us as people. What's our choices? What do we want? And how does that feed through into how we construct 
in the wider sense of that term, real estate markets in cities. Which Canadian cities are getting it right? And what would you improve in others? I guess we'll phrase it nicely. Before I even came to Canada, I was very aware of the term Vancouverism, which is the term that really describes very insightful planning that was done in the city some decades ago, and that was about density. I'm a great believer that dense is best, even though it has occasional difficult drawbacks in putting it in place. The views, the way the city was built downtown as walkable, the way it looked about putting amenities in. Of course, there's lots of other issues we could talk about there. So that's something that many other cities have looked at. How do you actually create an environment that is almost democratically available to many people. I think that's certainly important. Just yesterday, the EIU, Economist Intelligence Unit, revealed their 2022 Livable Cities Index. And to answer your question directly, Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, all in the top 10 of that index. And they typically are every year. It's created through a whole load of data that people analyze. But to me, that says something important, which is no matter all the challenges, the cities here in Canada get a fair amount of it right. And so what is that? Let's, I mean, let's just break that down. Is that parks, walkability, public transportation, availability of employment? What are the major things that you would think about that go into that? Or did I just list them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, all of that, plus quite a few others. Healthcare, environmental response, right. resources. Yeah, so it tries to take... All of the, just as it's, if you're a citizen sitting here, you would probably quote all of those things as being influential in your life and what you want more of. In your research, you're obviously looking at what we're doing today, but obviously thinking about what the future cities look like. What are the best practices that we're going to see to keep Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver on that livability list? It really comes down to the availability of housing. If we can't house people and give them the choice that matches their wants, their desires, then that's going to be a challenge. It's a challenge for cities everywhere. And clearly for cities in Canada, with the immigration figures and targets, that's going to be even more of a challenge. An awful lot of people, one and a half million, I think by 2025, to absorb into the city environment. It's the same in every city. In London, the target provision of units is something like 90,000 a year. They probably get half of that now. Most of the cities you look at have this problem. So what that comes down to is speed, as a topic that we've heard in the forum over the last couple of days. We need to find a way to speed up permitting, to make certain what the policies are, and there's been interesting policy changes here in Canada just recently about densification, and to be able to work in partnership, and that sounds like an easy thing to say and it's not uh, easy to do, but the more cooperation and real collaboration on vision, that's going to help. And it's a huge topic. And also, we're also talking about the fact that a lot of condos, small condos here in Toronto, a lot of single people living in these condos where, is that going to be the future? Demographics is destiny. What's going to happen to families do single-person households really work? Is that the best approach? Should we be giving a greater mix? And talking about mix, of course, mixed juice is the other big thing when it comes to creating livability in any city. You need that option, places to go, 
real attraction where you can live, work, play, and squeeze the most out of your urban experience. Affordability is a huge issue to tackle. If you were a city looking to improve your ranking within that system, what's the low-hanging fruit? What's something the cities could easily do in two or three years' time just to bump themselves up a couple of spots? There's no low-hanging fruit on this one. (laughs) And to be honest, I don't think cities think that way. We've changed. You know, I used to do a lot of work on indices, and there are currently around 300 indices of performance of cities covering just about anything you can think of. And it used to be that cities did be far more deliberate in what they want to be known. Brand is important, right? You ask any young person, they know cities off the top of their head where they want to go and live because they have that brand immediately available, be that livable or downtown or finance related or experience or destination, any of those type of clusterings of cities. Certainly the last couple of years has have taught us that we need to go, and most cities believe this, back to basics to understand what makes a city work for the majority of the people. And we will see, in my view, a lot more work that's coming out on the forensics, on the analytics, on trying to pin together all the patterns that we're seeing in the way people use cities and what they want. The customer is important in terms of giving a real experience that makes not just livable in the sense that I think we might all think about, but practical to live in. We have to be able to live in a city within our means that gives us the right experience. Rosemary, we are out of time, but I want to thank you for sharing your vision of resiliency in cities with us. It is inspiring. I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear it's difficult, but I do like the vision for what could be. We want to thank, of course, the Real Estate Forums and their speaker video series here at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. Our sponsors for this are Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, Rycom, and Turner Townsend. And thanks to First National for powering the podcast. And thanks to Rosemary for taking the time. Yeah. I think this concludes your speaking obligations after two long days. Maybe it's time to, yeah, just relax. (laughs) Yeah, so thanks, Rosemary. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I talk about the conversation we just had with Rosemary Feenan. Her part of commercial real estate is just so interesting, right? Because it's sort of this connection between human behavior and cities and the built world. And she kept talking about sort of the spatial component of it. She has a spatial bug, yeah. Right, which is not something that we really think about, particularly in lending. And maybe the terminology is different, but it is a really interesting intersection, right? Between just human behavior and, and our communities and then just what the built world looks like around us particularly in the city center, particularly right now, right? And we kind of talked about just the impacts of transportation and working from home, working from office. I saw a statistic recently, or someone said it, I don't know, we're at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. One of the two. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. at the end of the last three days. And I can't remember, one of the 200 people I've talked to said, more people come downtown on weekends. Yeah, I heard that too. So I probably was in that conversation. Right, so very, very interesting that people want to come downtown. They like downtown. They enjoy the opportunity of having downtown, but just not on a, Wednesday. Yeah, it's clearly not fear of COVID at this point because you can catch it in the weekend just as easily as you can catch it on a Tuesday yeah, afternoon. You can catch it at your local grocery store or downtown at the Royal Ontario Museum. Right? Yeah, I guess the work life has shifted. We had another guest, Hugh Gorman, talking on about Ottawa, and he mentioned there that they have the lowest, not office occupancy, but it was a metric of how often people come down. And so the idea there is that Ottawa suffers an outsized 
consequence of downtown vibrancy by very fact that the federal employees are not coming in the office very much. It was use of the occupancy. Yes, there you go. Yeah. The space is leased, but people aren't actually using it. Do the local retailers care if somebody's paying for office space, but nobody's coming in? That doesn't really help them too much. It helps the landlord. It doesn't really help the local retailers who be trying to catch that associated business. Yeah. Rosemary did mention the smart lampposts. Because of her British accent, I just imagine these really beautiful looking lampposts that are somehow intelligent. Wearing glasses. To yeah, look at them. right. But I think what she was really just talking about is just there are these sensors that are now getting pings off of cell phones that are tracking who's where and doing what. Which I think, you know, quite frankly, for real estate decision makers, having that excess data, having that extra data is just so integral to proper investments, getting more yield out of your investments, better strategy, et cetera. And she clearly is finding ways to take that research and deliver it to Quadrio. We had a few guests come in over the last few days here to talk about data. And that's one of my takeaways is two parts to it is the methods of collection and privacy concerns and how do you get this big ungodly sum of data? And then two, what do you do with it? How do you process it? How do you analyze it and then implement it? Those are two kind of separate categories. My opinion is that it's so early and you know we talk about big data and big data is so important. And I'm sure there are small segments of the business community, and I'm not talking commercial real estate, just across the board, that are leveraging big data to some degree, but not the full degree. I think in real estate, we're not even really scratching the surface. No. Commercial in particular, it tends to be a laggard on... uh, Yeah, I bet you our retail clients, our users of retail, probably you're leveraging a little bit better. And we've heard it where the retail user needs better understanding of their consumers and how they're purchasing strategy or their purchasing behaviors and that kind of thing to make sure that they're making the right sales. That makes sense when you're selling, you know, $50 pairs of jeans or $100 pair of shoes. When we're talking about, you know, am I going to develop a $100 million apartment building versus a condo building or what mixed use facilities? I'm not sure we're really leveraging data very well. I think a lot of those decision making is occurring based on walking the street, looking around going, I think we should add this type of space. Oh, gut feel still is a huge decision maker. There's billions of dollars people are pulling the trigger on just gut feel. Yeah. And I think the reality is Quadrio doesn't have the luxury of just, okay, Mr. President CEO, what's your gut tell you? (laughs) Yes. All right. You got it. Here's a billion dollars. Go. Right. Like, so clearly Rosemary is there to support the gut feel. Yeah. Of course, your gut feels wrong. You know, like the data speaks the truth. Right. That is it for the after show. Thanks, Rosemary, for coming on. And of course, for everybody to listening to the very end. See you in the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.